Hi, we're Ellen Taylor, and we're here to join you on your journey from pregnancy to birth, postpartum, and beyond. Here on the podcast, you'll get interviews with birth and parenting professionals, birth stories, and educational episodes to get you feeling confident, supported, and empowered on your journey to and through parenting. Welcome to Birth Reimagined. Hi, I'm Elle Kennedy, a birth photographer and doula based in Orange County, California, and I use she, her pronouns. Hi, I am Dr. Taylor Garcia, a doctor of chiropractic also based in Orange County, and I also use she, her pronouns. Today, we're talking to Trisha Goodall. Trisha, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Welcome to Birth Reimagined. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Um, so I identify as she, her, and a mom, and I have two kids. My daughter just turned five, and my son is six. So they're pretty close in age. I um, really, really miss karaoke from <laughs> before I yes. had kids. Um, I'm, I like to enjoy myself and have fun. But um, yeah, motherhood was a very difficult journey. And I mean, not like I'm off of it. I'm still on it. Um, but it's been a difficult journey. And um, I currently work with other moms to try to support them and partly trying to make that transition a little bit easier but also from the friendships that I've made and trying to bring a little bit of the tools that have helped me so much into the world of all the other moms so Oh, I love that. That's like, I don't know. I feel like that's like part of our core tenets here on the podcast too, is like connecting people together and being like, you know, here's what we've learned. Maybe some of it'll help you too. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Um, So it's so great to have you here today. Um, We actually invited you on to uh, talk about your birth story and kind of that journey into motherhood for you. So yeah. you've told us you've got two kids um, which birth story are you going to be sharing with us today? Um, I'll share about my son's birth story. Yeah, so my son was a large baby. They both were. Um, and I was about, well, my mom had come in. She thought he might be a few days late. So she had come to visit us and stay for the first two weeks. But he was like 11 days late. And so we, my, I have a traditional OB and he was very great, but also very awkward. And he's kind of known in town as like amazing and also awkward. And so he's very like blunt, I guess. And when I went to him the day before, it was like, well, nothing's moving. And he was like, well, we need an appointment for that Monday because we don't want you to go too far. So I was scheduled to be induced that Monday. And that Friday, I was working, still working, but I was working from home. And I had like a bunch of pillows surrounding me on my couch. And I had my laptop propped up and I was trying to get my voicemail set up for, um, to say that I'm on maternity leave while I'm gone. And so I had a guy on IT and I had like a timer going because my contractions had started that morning. And so he was like, oh, are you timing me? And I was like, no, I'm just timing my contractions. And he was like, oh, oh God, do do we need to go? I was like, no, it's totally fine. 
fine. It's it's cool. I got it. And I was like, no, it's early labor. He's like, uh, okay. <laughs> I was like, it's cool. And so it didn't really get painful until late in the afternoon. And by the evening, I was like, okay, this just got real. And I had taken prenatal yoga and amazing, amazing studio and amazing teacher. And her name was Kelly. And that will come important (laughs) into the story later. But she talked a lot about like when the baby is like turned and positions you can do to relieve pain and like release and all these different things. So I had like a plan and I had taken like a birth class and um, like through the hospital, not like an in-depth evidence-based childbirth class. That probably would have been amazing, but I did not take that. It was just the one through the hospital. Um, So the contractions got really big and really strong. And I was on the phone with my doctor and he said, well, they need to be something like two minutes apart um, for two hours before you come to the hospital. And he was trying to keep me out of the hospital for as long as possible because he was like, you're not going to be able to eat. You're not going to be able to have the same mobility once you go into the hospital. So I want you to stay out of the hospital as long as you can. So then they were every three minutes and then they jumped up to like every minute and a half and they were every minute and a half for like 45 minutes. And I was just in so much pain and I was screaming and cursing Kelly. It was just like, ah, Kelly, (laughs) I'm a blamer. So I'm like anyone (laughs) to blame. I was blaming her and my partner, everybody. And my mom was just sitting there with like terrified eyes on. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? And so we called him again and we're like, are you sure I shouldn't come in? And by this point it was like nine o'clock in the evening. And he was like, I don't think you should come in, but if you would feel comfortable with it, you'll at least be able to get some medication. But I had already told him that I wanted to try for a non-medicated birth. Um, And so that was the other thing. He was like, once you come in, it's going to be available to you. So you're more likely to have it. And he was like, I think you've probably got 10 more hours before you go into late, before you give birth. And I'm like, that is insane. No, you don't know. You don't know what you're talking about. So I went in there and they hooked me up to like the sensors and everything and gave me some fentanyl. And the nurse, I wish she hadn't have said it, but she was like, oh, you are probably ready to start pushing based on these. This is like really intense. And so then they checked me and I was at four centimeters and I was like, that is not close. (laughs) And a lot of things happened in there. And I eventually um, asked for an epidural and I got the epidural and was able to actually sleep for a little bit. And I woke up. So this is an interesting thing because my partner and my mom say that I was fully lucid, fully there. And Walansky was my doctor and he said, um, things have slowed down. You know, I'm going to break your water. Like, are you okay with that? And apparently we had this like very lucid conversation about it. My memory is waking up to my water being broken. So there's this like period that I don't remember, 
but they were like, you don't remember that? You were like having a conversation. I'm like, no, I don't remember that. So that's strange, but we, he broke my water at, at some point in the middle of the night and I was pushing some more and I got to the point where I was transitioning and pushing and I pushed for about an hour and a half and, um, he was kind of feeling around my stomach and was like, I don't think he's moving. And then I got a fever and he was like, I'm a little concerned and I'm wondering if we should prep you for a C-section. And by this point I was starving and they wouldn't give me any food. He was right about that. They wouldn't give me any food because they thought I might have a C-section. So at the point that I had pushed for an hour and a half, he said that he was concerned and recommended it and wanted to know what I wanted to do. And he said, I support you. If you want to push, I will let, I will support you in pushing for four more hours if you want to do that. And part of me was like, yes, but then I was so exhausted too. And I was like, oh gosh. And I had taken a class in the childbirth class through the hospital that I had taken they had done an exercise with us that was like a bunch of cards and on one side it was like fentanyl no fentanyl epidural no epidural and one of the cards was healthy baby healthy baby on both sides and so we had to like lay out our ideal birth scenario and then flip over one card and slowly do that until all of the cards were flipped over and that exercise was hugely helpful to me in that moment when we were there and I'm like I've been pushing for an hour and a half he's not moving and I just want my baby (laughs) and I want it to be okay and they don't know why I've got a fever let's just do this and so we went in for a c-section And I vomited on the operating table, which is always great. Um, But my anesthesiologist, she inspired my husband. He was like, man, I want our kids to grow up and be an anesthesiologist. (laughs) Because she was just so amazing. Like, I didn't have a doula. And I didn't didn't realize that as, like, an every person thing. I thought that was, like, a yuppie person thing. And so I was like, oh, I don't have a doula. I don't even know what they do. But she almost acted like a doula for me. And so it was just so, she was very comforting. And the with the throwing up, she was like moving my hair out of the way and like brushing the vomit off of my face, like so gently. Um, but so after he was, when they were cutting him out, Again, I was like, the doctor said something that I wish he hadn't have said. He was like, oh, he was further down there than I thought. <laughs> and I'm like, don't say that. Um, so they got him out and he was like, it's awful that I can't remember this now, but I think he was nine pounds and um, nine ounces maybe. So he was very big and I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm a petite person. My bones are petite. (laughs) So, um, that is, uh, that was difficult for sure. And I think 
after he was born, they we didn't do skin to skin immediately because they had him wrapped and they had a, him on my chest, but he was wrapped up. And um, then they took him to recovery and they took me into recovery while I guess the epidural wore off and I could like start to feel my legs. But I was alone in a room. And I remember being like a little bit bored and then I started to get antsy and then I started to get nervous and I was like, where is my baby? Where is my partner? Where is my mom? There was no nurse and there was like nobody. I was like in this room by myself and at the end of the room there was a window and so I could occasionally see like a nurse walking by and I don't know how long I was back in that room and I was also like on a lot of medication so I could have been in that room for five minutes but I felt like I was in that room for like an hour or more it felt so long and so that was definitely very upsetting and I eventually was able to go into my recovery room with my family and um then I remember my doctor saying to me that my goal for the day was to get out of bed and sit in the chair in the room. And I was just like, of course. And I was like, oh, that is very, very hard having just like been cut open and all of these things. And he sent my mom down to the, um, I don't remember if it was my mom or my partner, but he sent someone down to the gift shop and he was like, you need to go buy this for her. It's a belly band. Um, it's going to help keep things in and try not to laugh. But if you do like hug a pillow towards your abdomen, um, and my partner kept making me laugh, um, which was like sweet, but I was also like, shut up. Um, so yeah, I think that that has brought us to the conclusion of the birth story, I think. Yeah. Once you got in the recovery room, did they bring your, your son to you to do skin they on did. skin? And, okay. Yeah, we did a lot of skin to skin. Um, and we had more visitors than I think like the now me would have allowed um, so it, it was all, it was fine, but my partner has a lot of family in the area and my mom was visiting. So it was just her on my side. And then, um, yeah, it was visitor after visitor. And my mom was like, you were like white, like I'm pale to begin with. And she was like, you looked like you were dead, translucent, like crazy. And so it was it was wild I think for her um her sister had a pretty traumatic birth experience they gave birth like within a month of each other and her and my sister or not not my sister but her sister my aunt both had really traumatic birth experiences and so I think like that was also really triggering for her seeing me go through that so but yeah then we did do a lot of skin to skin and loved that yeah now did they give you any sort of rehab after the c-section like no. any exercises <laughs> core workout anything 
No. No. Okay. Um, Any information or pamphlets or like anything? Do you hug a pillow and don't laugh? Like, there might have been. I the, don't really the reason remember. we ask is because um, we had Amanda on talking about her C-section, how they basically gave her like no information. And like, you know, a couple weeks later, you go in for your checkup. Oh, your stitches are looking good. And that's it. And that's so she, it. Yeah. She she started putting together a whole like C-section like course of like for if you're going in with a planned C-section, but also if you end up with an unexpected C-section or an unplanned C-section, you know, what can you do afterward, even from while you're still in the hospital directly Mm -hmm. afterward, like things you can do to, to help recover. So I think that, you know, that's the kind of stuff that should be accessible to everyone. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Someone posted something that I saw that was like comparing the rehab and recovery for knee surgery versus a C-section. And I, like, never even put it together. I'm like, yeah, why didn't I have, like, recovery? And, I mean, I had pain medication, but it was, like, narcotic pain medication. And so you're like, oh, do I need it? And it's not like you can take it and still function. It's like, do I want to function or do I want to not, like, feel my insides being ripped out? And so I think, like, what they told me was, like, try to go slow and walk, and if the bleeding picks up, then scale back on the activity. That was pretty much it. Um, He did, my OB was really insistent on, um, there's a local gym that does, like, a, which this isn't even how it should be, but they do, like, a 60-day thirty dollars for thirty days. They call it a prep program. And he would ask everybody at that like follow up appointment and encourage you to take him up on that. Because it required like a doctor's signature and a doctor's referral to get that price. Hmm. Um and so I think I did that, but I think I did it like much later. I didn't do it um because I think at the time I was like, I don't want to go to a gym. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, taking care of a new baby. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But um, eventually, I think like probably four or five months later, I did do that. And he was like, oh, I just called his office. And he was like, I'll absolutely write that for you. No problem. I mean, that's but... nice of the local gym to have that kind of deal for like rehab type things. But still, there should be right. something. <laughs> Yeah, there should be like a whole thing. <laughs> but well, because you want to re-strengthen yeah. your core and re-strengthen your pelvic floor after mm-hmm. all that. So yeah, yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> something to work for. Got it. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, you being in that room alone like brought up memories for me that like I had kind of forgotten about. Um, so. Teddy, my younger, was born in a hospital, and uh, we knew that they were going to have a birth defect, a, a, mm. a congenital heart defect, and so we knew that they were going to be taken away for testing and stuff after after they were born, but my partner had gone with Teddy 
to the children's hospital for the testing and my doula had already left and then all the nurses and every you know like my birth room was packed with people there was probably like 12 people in my birth room between mm-hmm. the the NICU staff and you know the OB and like just all of the people and like all of a sudden I was like by myself and I was just like oh my god what do I do like you're in a room like it's not like a, it's not a recovery room like you're still in the birth room they haven't moved you over to recovery yet there's no tv like you can't really move like you Mm -hmm. just gave birth like what are you gonna do and like I just remember being there and just being like what like what now like just like a bizarre you feel like you're in this other world from everybody else that sounds terrifying like just the thought of basically you've gone through something whether it be a surgery or you know through the birth and you're just like there and you're waiting that would, mm-hmm. gosh, with someone like that could give someone serious anxiety. Yeah, yeah, I do annoying. feel like it was traumatic. I and... wonder why they do that. They're prepping the room. And they don't just think that people need someone to communicate with them and be like, "Hey, this is what we're doing. We'll be right back." You know, like just people <laughs> communication important. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for me, like, there were other birthing people there, you know, other people there to, you know, give birth to their babies. And so the nurses, you know, have other people that they need to check in on, too. And it's not, you know, it's not always just about you. I mean, I don't, I think it's a little bit different, you know, for you, Trisha, having having been in the OR. But I think that's something that people don't really realize is once the baby's born, that attention shift from birthing person to baby is immediate. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's all about, you know, meeting the baby's needs, you know, whatever, whatever the particular needs for that individual baby are, you know, every, like I said, Teddy needed a much different set of needs than most babies being born. But that immediate attention shift can be very jarring Mm -hmm. and can be very abrupt. And it's, it's my job as a birth worker when I'm in that space I'm there to support the birthing person and their partner as part of their team. And it's actually right. something that had been brought up um, in one of the groups that I'm in recently of like, you need to find birth workers who are there for your needs and who aren't, they, I think the way they phrased it was like, you don't want somebody who is so focused on your vagina that they don't see you as a person. And it was just like, <laughs> this is so true. Like, this is so true of all birthing people. Like, it's, it's, yes, you're there to, you know, assist in the delivery of this person, but the birthing person is the one doing that delivery, regardless mm-hmm. of whether it's a belly birth or whether it's a vaginal birth or, you know, it's, they are still the one going through this process, through this transformation of becoming a parent, of bringing this being into the world. Yeah. And their experience needs to be honored and recognized. It's a sacred transition. Like, it is, ah, it is so powerful. And, like, that moment of being alone in the room without your baby, without your partner, without anyone else there to support you emotionally is mm-hmm. is just so jarring Mm -hmm. yeah and you're I mean I can't speak for everyone but in my case I wasn't fully lucid so I was like it's a little bit of 
it was a similar feeling to like when you're being when someone is gaslighting you you're like I'm in here forever no I'm in here for a little bit because you can't really trust what your brain is telling you because you don't really know I've been in here for five minutes or I've been in here for like two hours um and I I did a workshop once with innate traditions and she was talking a lot about the we grow up our our bodies are meant to be in community and she used the term village and when we kind of come to after having our baby and we see around us we're supposed to have like an aunt a grandma a grandpa we're supposed to be surrounded by this village that is taking care of our baby while we rest and recover and also taking care of us and nourishing us with all of these things and she was sort of talking about it in the concept of the way that postpartum period is in our society at large but when she was talking about like how traumatic that is and it was like I think she described it as like generational trauma of like Mm -hmm. we see we know and we feel that we're supposed to be surrounded by people caring for us right now and we're not and that causes a trauma that we then have to recover from and so I definitely felt that during the larger postpartum period as well but when I was hearing that described for the first time I was thinking about that time that I was alone in that room where I was like I don't want to it was just it it's so hard to name because it wasn't terrifying. It wasn't like horrendous, but it was like, this isn't right. It's, it's disconcerting. And it feels like I said, it feels wrong. Something is yes, not it's right. It's like unnerving. Here. Yeah. You become acutely aware of a lack of something. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's different than other emotions. It's just, it's, it's a lack of something you know you know what it feels like to be loved you know what it feels like to be scared but that that emotion of like something should be here there should be something in this space emotionally physically Mm -hmm. and it's not it feels like this void Mm -hmm. and and I wasn't on medications but I was seriously sleep deprived um I had a 51 and a half hour labor Mm. and I went into labor after I'd already been up for a full like I went into labor at 10 p.m at night and labored Mm. for 51 and a half hours and I could not sleep during any of that I was like you know fits and start you know five minutes of sleep here five minutes of sleep there no steady sleep so I was on serious um sleep deprivation so I totally understand that like I have zero concept of time like I didn't even know what time it was it wasn't Mm -hmm. until later that I found out oh your baby was born at 323 in the morning and I'm just like oh okay it could have been noon like I have no concept of what time it is like I'm in a hospital the lights are on all the time like I I got nothing but yeah, yeah that that lack of a sense of time mixed with that lack of presence when you feel in your soul that there should be people surrounding you. There should be somebody with you. You shouldn't be alone at that mm-hmm. time is just. 
I wonder, and this might be something we do like a survey to our listeners. I wonder if, again, this is me having never given birth, so you guys might be able to answer this. If that, since you have that awareness of your baby, once they're born, I wonder if just that, since there is no longer a baby in you, if that, like the lack of presence, I wonder if that might be almost, even if you have people in your room, if you don't have your baby immediately with you after the birth, I wonder if that lack of presence is like a common thing that people feel. Because you no longer have that presence that's always with you for nine months, and then now it's outside of you. (laughs) You know, I wonder if that is... I think that could definitely feed into it. Um, I think in this case, it wasn't just that, but I think that definitely had a big part to do with it. Um, I mean, after Charlotte, I was hospitalized for 36 hours for high blood pressure. And there were times where it was just me and Charlotte in the room without Jeremy there. And I didn't feel that same lack like I did before because at least, Mm. you know, at least the baby was there. So I think that that can be part of it, but I definitely don't think that that was the only thing because yeah. it that lack it it feels different. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's it's that feeling of like I it, it's a lack of support almost, and like you know even when I was hospitalized after Charlotte, like. I didn't feel that lack of support, you know, even when Jeremy left to go, you know go home and get clothes for the baby, you know, fresh outfit for the baby or, you know, things like that because we weren't anticipating a hospital stay. Um, You know, I knew he was gone and I knew when he would be coming back. With Teddy, he went with Teddy. I had no idea how long they were going to be gone. I didn't know when he was going to be coming back. I didn't know if Teddy was going to be coming back or not or if they were going to be keeping Teddy in the NICU and I had nobody to, to ask questions or to, ask, you know, to get any answers to those things. And I think that's that's part of it, too, is is not having anyone to be like, what is going on? Who do I who do I ask if I have a need? How am I going to fill that need when, you know, you you couldn't even feel your your legs. You couldn't mm-hmm. even get up to go to the bathroom by yourself if you needed to like and, and not having somebody there to be like, hey, I have to go to the bathroom. How do I do that? Who can help me do that? Like what, Yeah, you know, it's, it's those basic needs not being met and feeling that lack of, I don't know how to, I, I can't meet these needs by myself. Yeah. Kind of on a bit of a flip side, for lack of a better term, when babies have that same thing where their needs are not being met, and this is commonly one of the arguments against self-soothing. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, they have a need of some sort, whether it be food, bathroom, comfort, and it's not being met. Babies, will, when they go quiet, it's often them actually kind of going into a state of shock in the sense of if I'm quiet, predators can't get me because they don't know I'm here. Mm-hmm. Because you know, with babies, that's the primitive mind is, you know, food, you know, voiding and staying safe from predators. And um, with babies, they will go into that quiet, and it's basically a state of shock, and that can kind of cause a trauma too. So I wonder if that could also be sort of a thing you would grow up with if you were 
self-soothed as a child or given allowed to self-soothe as a child and then as you get older if you then got to the state as a parent and we're now in a room alone if you your brain would almost kind of think back to that self-soothing you just go quiet and just like not move and just sit there and be like okay i will just wait here until something happens hopefully nothing bad happens kind of thing one of those fun psycho- one of those fun psychological things <laughs> i definitely feel like there's i think that i can't i'm i don't want to get the terms wrong but there's like parasympathetic and mm-hmm. something else there um l are you doula or you're a doula, correct? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you may the know parasympathetic better. Parasympathetic and the sympathetic state, yeah. and I always get the two of them mixed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> so <laughs> fight, or, um, fight or flight versus and freeze basically is how I like to think of them. Yeah. Um, I've been waiting to do this um, postpartum doula training um, to better show up for my postpartum clients that I have. Um, and as part of that, we definitely talked about looking for those signs, even in like the postpartum mom, because like if she's saying things are hard, that's better than if she's just kind of detached and glazed over. Um, and it, it can seem like she's fine, but she's what you're describing is what's happening in the mom as well. Like the same way it happens in the child, it happens in the mom. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that I wouldn't interpret that freeze as being based on how you were soothed as a child or not soothed. It's possible. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but my interpretation or intuition there would be that it's just that same, uh, nervous system response as an adult that the child would have and it's actually interesting because I had my son self-soothe I like followed that instruction and that was like the line of thinking that I ascribed to at the Uh time and I remember at one point we had I never did a video monitor with him because that stressed me out way too much but we did a sound monitor, but we would turn the sound off and go outside. Um, And so we know he's safe in his crib, but we would go outside and we could see the bar of sound without hearing it. And if I heard it, it was just so hard to deal with. And I think in those early days with him, I went back and forth a lot on like, what should I do? What should I do? Um, And part of me was like, it should, it shouldn't feel this bad to me in my soul and my body. Um, I should feel better about this if this is the right thing to do. At the same time, he, we never like classified him as colicky, but when we go back and look, he was a fussy baby and um, there was definitely a time period where he was wanting to nurse like every hour and a half, but he wanted to nurse for like 45 minutes. So do that math. There's not a lot of breaks there. And so just for me, I was like, I can't do this this much. <laughs> I need I need a break. And 
I remember being in the pediatrician's office at one point and I was that kind of deadpan and I wasn't crying at the time, but I was like, well, he's dying. And she was like, well, tell me about that. And I was like, I know he's dying. He's crying constantly. He wants to nurse all the time. It's not helping. I don't even, I know there's milk going there because he sprays it everywhere, but uh, he's dying. <laughs> and she was like, I don't think he's dying, but let's take a look. And <laughs> like later I look back on that visit and I'm like, man, pediatricians are so, they kind of have to be like parent therapist is half of their job. Um, but so in that situation, he was not dying. He was totally fine. Um, but I did have a fast letdown and like, that was the issue. So like we tried some different positions and moved around and somehow things got better. And that was the, he was three weeks old at that point. And so that was when we actually started doing a bottle with him. And so my partner, he had a really good latch. And so my partner started doing one bottle feeding per night. And that actually continued uh, forever, as long as he was bottle fed. Or, well, as long as he was on, like, waking up in the middle of the night. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting. And my daughter, she wouldn't do the – she ha she was just a different baby. And so when she woke up in the middle of the night, she wouldn't let my partner uh, go to her. She would scream when he got there and picked her up and then she would drink the bottle, guzzle it down and then scream and wouldn't settle back down. And so he would have to come and wake me up anyways. And if I went in, she would settle when I picked her up, I would nurse her for maybe five or 10 minutes. She would only do one side at a time. And it was a very quick and she wanted to be laid down, which took me for, it took me a while to figure out that she wanted to be laid down because my son did not want to be laid down. He wanted to be held all the time. And so for him, the nighttime process was like a two-hour process because you're up, you're changing him, you're nursing him. And he was a long nurser. And then I had to like rock him to sleep and then like lay him down. And then he'd wake up as I'm laying him down and I'd rock him again. And so it was just all this effort and so we were like prepared when she was born and we moved a couch into her room so that we could take turns sleeping in there so that we also didn't wake him up because when she was born, he was only one years old. He was 21 months. So he needed to sleep too. It's not like he's going to like go back to sleep if he gets woken up. So it was just crazy how different they were and I remember at one point holding her and she was like fussing louder and I was like okay well let me bounce this way and I was like I'm getting worked up and I just like laid her down because I needed to step out of the room and as soon as I laid her down she was just like ah, ah, and like fell asleep and so then the next time I tried that I like nursed her and kissed her and laid her down and she just rolled over and was fine and I was like what <laughs> what is this craziness here and I was like well it's a good thing that we had her for our second because I think if she had been our first I would have been 
a very annoying parent to other parents. I would have been like, mm, you just don't know what you're doing because <laughs> if you did it my way, your baby would just roll over. I don't know why your baby's not doing it, but you know. But also that second kid would have been crazy making for you to be like, why isn't this kid so easy? Like, Yes, you know. yeah, that too. <laughs> it's a blessing to have the harder one first, I think. But yeah, it, it was crazy. But I say that because now she really had much less of that cry it out than he did. And it's now, it's hard to say like how much is nurture and how much is nature, right? Like he is a very anxious kid. He is high strung. And we have read a lot about like attachment theory and secure attachment. And um, we follow the circle of security, um, method and it's just jarring sometimes I'm like sometimes I wonder if he feels if he has a secure attachment with us despite like all of our efforts and everything that we're doing and have been doing now for years but I do often wonder like how would that have been different if we had had a different approach with him as an infant and it's hard when I look back because I'm like I don't know how we would have done that because like I was going crazy just with what we were doing but it's one of those things that I think is I'm grateful for where I'm at in life that I can look back on that and say I wonder if that could have been different but I don't have like a lot of guilt and I know a lot of parents do have that but I think it's really nourishing and helpful for ourselves when we can just look back at our old choices and say that's what I did I thought I was doing the best and like I wonder and maybe I believe that it was the wrong choice but like how do I move forward from that as opposed to dwelling in it so yeah I think that's super important to to look back and realize that the choices you made at the time were the best choices you could make with the skills and the knowledge and how equipped you mm-hmm. were and the mental state that you were in at the time and your emotional needs and your physical needs and and know that every single baby on this planet is different and what works for my kid is not the same as what's going to work for my other kid or for your mm-hmm. kids or for anybody else's kids like every single kid is so different and none of them comes with a user manual of, you know, best practices for this child. Like I wish, I wish, Um, but it doesn't work like that. And so all of us are doing it by trial and error and Mm -hmm. we are all making mistakes and we are all just doing the best that we can. And yeah, there are absolutely things I look back on and go, wow, wish I hadn't tried that. Wish wish that hadn't been my response in that situation. You know, <laughs> yeah. wish I would have had this knowledge sooner. Um, but, you know, we can't like that's a big part of it is is not feeling guilty for that and just being really secure in the knowledge that you did the best you could with what you were dealing with and what you had at the mm-hmm. time. That was that was your best choice, your best course of action for that baby, for where you were, for what your needs were and what that baby's needs were at that time. Right. Yeah. Like that that's that's it. Kind of one thing going back to what you said about the baby's cry making you anxious. 
it's meant to. A baby's right. cry is meant to make us alert. <laughs> and the funny thing is, you have like you know the audio in movies and TV shows for suspenseful moments or moments of like that cause anxiety. It's a very atonal sound, and it's meant to actually mimic a baby's cry. Because mm-hmm. as humans, we respond to a crying baby because we are supposed to respond to a crying baby. The response is help and take care of. That's just psychologically what we're supposed to do. So it's been used by like Hollywood to amp up anxiety in like certain horror movies or thrillers. So mm-hmm. yeah, kind of fun little <laughs> tidbit there. Fun. Yeah, I didn't realize that. <laughs> and they kind of that kind of whine that's really like, like really like high pitched kind of whine is meant to simu- like simulate a baby's cry and cause that anxiety in us. Mm-hmm. That's funny. When when we're pregnant, our brains actually rewire themselves to be more attuned to those pitches and frequencies so that we do respond to those things. It's why mm-hmm. it's why I do not sleep as deeply now as a mom than I did before kids because my body is on alert. My brain has rewired itself to be on alert for, you know, the baby moving, the baby crying, the baby, you know, whatever, even though my kids are five and seven, like my brain is still, it has been rewired to do those things. Yeah. So, uh, Trisha, do you have any advice or tips for soon to be parents or people who are going through a similar situation that you did with the birth of your son? Yeah. Um, I think at the time I had a lot of people that wanted to help me. And what I heard a lot was, let me know how I can help. And at the time, I was like, oh, well, I have no idea how you can help. Um, So I think if you're, if someone is pregnant, then talking with your partner, if you have a partner or a support person, talking with your support person, um, about ways that you can accept help and ideas ahead of time. Um, That way, when someone does say, let me know how I can help, you have something to go to. But I think the other key is mindset of remembering that they really want to help you. And if if you haven't gone through becoming a parent, then you almost don't believe that. And so I think that's why it's so hard for first-time parents to accept help because you're like, oh, nobody really wants to do this. I don't want to be a burden. That's what I hear a lot is I don't want to be a burden. And you're really not a burden. You know, doing things for other people and thinking about other people is really good for my mental health, it's really good for people's mental health. And nothing makes me happier and brings me, well, I guess maybe my kids bring me more joy, but (laughs) aside from my kids, um, nothing makes me happier than helping another mom. And so someone once said to me, thank you for the opportunity to serve. And that was really helpful to me. At the same time, I also 
thanked someone for helping one time and said, oh, how old were your kids when this happened? And they're like, oh, I didn't have help. Never. And I felt very judged in that moment. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. But the advice that I would give to people is, if you get that, know that that is not about you. That is about the other person. And you are deserving and worthy of help and support and being held. And you are meant to be witnessed in this time. So let people in and reach out as much as you can. And I know that there's a lot of, I mean, I think our society, birth is, it's hard not for it to be traumatic. So it's very difficult. And so I guess the advice is also for support people and just like really get in there. And I had a friend that when she had children a few years after me and I knew from my own experience that she wouldn't be able to answer the question, let me know how I can help. Or she would say, I'm good, which she did. And so I didn't ask, how can I help? I text, I would text and say, hey, I'm going to come over tomorrow and bring a meal. Do you have any requests? Anything else I can pick up on my way? And if she didn't answer, I would show up anyways, unannounced. And like, when I was a kid, we went loafing. And that was like, you drive around. And if somebody's home, you show up and you say hello. And it's this big thing. And I feel like cell phones have just ruined that for us these days. (laughs) There's no unexpected visits. But I would totally do that. And I would see if she was available. I would text her, let her know I was there. And sometimes I would just leave wine on her front stoop and a card and say, I'm here for you. I love you. Let me know when you can get together. I'll be there. And I knew that it would be really nourishing for her because that would have been really nourishing for me. And I did have a lot of support in various ways, but it never felt adequate. And I think that's the key is like, if it doesn't feel adequate and you have support, there's nothing wrong with you. It just means you need more support. And you don't live in a village anymore. Yeah. Right. Exactly. One of the things we'd mentioned on this podcast before was like, make a chore jar or box that when someone comes mm-hmm. over, you know, say, hey, can you pull something from this jar and do it for me because I'm kind of busy right now. And it was like, you know, either like a cleaning thing or like run a quick errand, you know, have you had like gift cards for whatever local um, like grocery store and say, hey, I need to pick up a couple things. And just having that kind of pre-prepped sort of answers that question for you. They can look through the jar, grab what they can do, what they're okay with doing. And it could be cleaning, laundry, again, grocery store runs. Uh, Just can you, you know, if there's bottle feeding, do a bottle feeding so I can take a quick nap. Just little things. Yeah. And they kind of, quote unquote, earn their keep while they're there just to visit, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if, if you don't like the idea of, like, it being so randomized with, like, a jar or whatever, it could just be, like, a whiteboard or something like that where you just yeah. keep track of, like, you know what? Our sheets haven't been washed this week. You know what? You know, our, our we have dishes piling up. 
or, you know, whatever it is. And just, you know, as you walk by your whiteboard, just jot things down if you can. And that way when somebody mm-hmm. comes over, they'll know, you know, they'll see the whiteboard and be like, this is what I feel comfortable doing. I'm totally fine doing your dishes, but I not comfortable touching your sheets, you know, whatever it is that that person, yeah. you know. I would be, you know, you know, I'm more than happy to cook you a meal and bring it to you, but I don't want to do, you know. Yeah. I you know, I do I have friends who are like, I do not want to hold your baby, but I will definitely do your dishes. I will, <laughs> you know, vacuum your floors, you know, whatever, but you mm-hmm. know, everybody has different needs and so being able to to meet them where they're at too. I know um, when I had Charlotte, my mom, you know, my mom would come over and visit. And she'd be like, oh, is there anything I can pick up for you on the way? Do you know, do you need a new, another pack of diapers? Do you need, you know, is there something I can pick up from the store? And I remember calling her um, a few days after, you know, we got home and everything. And I was just like, mom, I just want the cushiest, softest toilet paper that you can find. <laughs> I don't care how expensive it is. Just like... <laughs> the plushiest toilet paper that you can find <laughs> and like i am i am a super frugal person i would always go for like the cheapest bulk container of like whatever toilet paper like it never mattered <laughs> to me before and after that first kid man i went with the charmin soft and we have never gone back i accidentally <laughs> i accidentally bought the charmin strong instead of the charmin soft at costco and i have like five rolls of that stuff left and i am so looking forward to going back to my soft another week <laughs> when we run out of this toilet paper because i oh man i never went back <laughs> yeah. but you know fine you know don't be scared my mom was so happy to buy to bring that toilet paper over too she was just like I'm yes. so glad you asked for something like he, I could absolutely get I, she went to like three different stores to yeah. find the right toilet paper and the right size diapers um, yeah Charlotte was Charlotte was a full-term baby she was born at 40 weeks in one day but she was so skinny she was only six pounds and so she was just wow, like super yeah. rail thin so like the newborn size diapers would just fall off of her so we were looking for like creamy size diapers for the first few weeks and my mom was like I went to like three different stores and like they cut, they only come in like little packs. They don't come in, in like Costco size cases mm-hmm. for the preemies, which baby industry <laughs> sell your preemie stuff in bulk because the, like we were not dealing with a preemie baby, but I know parents who are dealing with preemie babies. They have enough added costs and extra crap that they have to go through. The last thing they need to be doing is paying $20 for a 15 pack of diapers that they will go through in a day and a half. Like sell them a hundred diapers. If they don't go through it, I promise you they will donate it to another preemie parent because Mm -hmm. they know what it's like. Like, um, Ah, sorry. <laughs> Off my soapbox. <laughs> that one bugged me so bad. And that, like, we we only had to deal with it for, like, you know, a week or two while she was just super real thin. Like, oh, man, the actual preemie parents. I feel for them in so many ways. Holy cow. Anyway, sorry. Um, but she would go to, like, multiple stores. And I remember at one time she was like, I lucked out. I went to the store and there were four containers of the preemie diapers. But I only bought you three. Because I didn't want to take that last one because I knew the next parent coming in looking for those preemie diapers would have just been heartbroken 
that there were no packages left on that shelf. And I was just like, Mom, I love you. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. So, Trisha, what is something you do, t- do to take care of yourself? I do so many things to take care of myself. Good. I advocate for myself. That's the biggest thing. Um, I went through a period of recovery a couple years ago, at personal recovery, and that process, like, gave me a really solid base to advocate from. So um, sometimes it's going on a walk with my dog. Sometimes it's saying, I don't want to be disturbed. I actually have a candle that is do not disturb mode. And (laughs) when I saw it, I was like, I am buying this candle. And so I put it on my desk and I'm like, I am in do not disturb mode. You may not speak to me. So most of my self-care things right now are being alone, alone time. And pre-pandemic, my partner and I both used to do solo solo weekends away um, on a semi-regularly basis, semi-regular basis. But um, we hadn't done anything for a really long time, but I just scheduled my first one again. Um, and I'm so excited. Nice. <laughs> I cannot wait. Nice. My parents so, did that. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I took a vacation to Austin by myself once, and it was wonderful. And I would get there, and I, you know, meet a few people, and they'd be like, oh, so, like, what's your story? I'm like, oh, I'm just on vacation. And then it would somehow, like, I'm a mom on vacation, and, like, that's weird. I'm like, no, it's not. (laughs) You will thank me for this later when you become a parent and then you realize this is normal. Um, I mean, it's probably not common, but it should be. Everybody needs time to themselves. So, yeah. Trisha, can you share a success or a funny story from this week? Yeah. So, (laughs) I'll share one from today, actually. So we went to the beach a couple weeks ago, and we do dates with our kids on the weekends usually. So we take turns solo. It's nice because we only have two kids, so it's easy to do. But we, while we were there, I took my daughter to some shopping center, and we went into Claire's, which I hadn't been in in many years. And was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And she's only five, but she was like, I want makeup. And I was like, you're too young for makeup. She's like, but this is our date. And I was like, well, I don't want to buy you Claire's makeup. Like I had Claire's makeup, but like, I know a little bit more now and I have sensitive skin and she has a little bit of sensitive skin. And I'm like, I would rather like go get you some like mineral based, like, good kid makeup (laughs) rather than getting you Claire's makeup. So today was our mission to go to our local toy store and get her some kid makeup. And so we did that and she just like afterwards we were sitting in my bedroom putting on makeup next to each other. And I normally don't wear makeup. Um, Usually I'm not wearing makeup (laughs) and so we're sitting there putting on makeup together and it was just so 
crazy. I guess it's not that funny, but it's just like there was something about watching her put on makeup and she's like putting on the eyeshadow like all the way above her eyebrow and like surrounding her eye and she's like I can't see it and I'm like really because it's purple I can see it and I think she wants like neon colors on her eyes or something like that I'm not really sure but that was just a really sweet moment that we had together and it's really strange because when she was, before she was born, we got her nursery set up and I was very intentional about not wanting it to be too girly because I was like, I want her to be whatever she wants to be. And if one day this baby doesn't identify as she or her, I don't want them to look back on those pictures and see this like pink fluffy room that doesn't make sense to them at all so I put so much thought into what color the room should be what color the bedding should be the deck the core and everything and she just came out wanting a tutu it was like <laughs> crazy she has always been into dolls she has always been into princesses and like my son too had a period where I would paint my nails and he would ask to paint his nails and it was more of an a I was like I just don't want to paint a three-year-old's nails and so at the time I was like oh when you're older I'll paint your nails um but he never really cared that much and he'd ask his cousins would put makeup on him and that was okay, but it, I ne he would ask, but he never really asked, you know? It was like, he clearly didn't really included. care. included. Yeah, yeah, it was more of that. He wanted to be part of it, um, but he didn't want it for himself. And it is funny to me to think about the level of effort that I put in to try to make her stuff gender neutral. And she just came out and was like, I am a fairy princess and I am in love with the world and here is my throne and where is my <laughs> makeup. And so here she is at five years old and I'm buying her makeup. And I would have said I would never buy my child makeup until they're 12 years old. And like, I just bought a five-year-old makeup today. <laughs> I'm like, oh, she's a girl. And we just read... Um, we bought that book. I'm not sure if you've read it, but Jack, not Jackie. Uh, it's a children's book. And no, I feel like I've heard of it. I may have read it to my kids. We may have borrowed it from the library. It sounds familiar. It's very sweet. Um, and it was funny how they were like, totally. Yeah. And towards the end of the book, it's an older sister. It's, it's written from the older sister's perspective. And she talks about, like, I have a baby sister, Jackie. And they go through, she grows up. And over time, it becomes clear that Jackie uh, identifies as a boy. And so one day, leaving the park, she says, no, I'm Jack. And so then the older sister gets upset and is like, well, I want my sister back. And, like, I want to do all this stuff and da 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 and 
it's a really sweet thing. And so by that point in the book, Jack has said, I am Jack and I am he. And so when the, when you're reading the older sister's processing of that and the older sister says, but her eyes, my son was like, his eyes, (laughs) like it was so quick with them. They were just like, obviously of course it wasn't strange to them at all it was so obvious and they're both also just so confident in who they are I mean at this point in their life you know and so I read that and then I I think I I got really into that I never got the sense that either of them felt differently than what their uh felt differently basically I never got that sense from them but I saw something from the tutu teacher and she said that if you have like more than four kids in your class you have a trainer maybe it wasn't four maybe it was ten whatever the number was like if you have more than that many students in your class then you have a transgender student so don't say that you don't need to be inclusive because you don't have a transgender student. And I was just like, oh, that's a really good point. And so I got much more into like getting those, working those into our regular routine of things. But it was really uplifting and hopeful to see their reaction to it of just like, oh, oh. and they they made some comment about do they they kind of had a conversation afterwards about how they feel about what they identify as and my son was like that is definitely a girl good good (laughs) i'm like like, well apparently that's how i talk um but she was like yep (laughs) so that's really cute Two two of my favorite kids books uh that talk about gender in a a very um, accessible way for little kids are there's one I think it's called red or blue it's it's about a crayon and the crayon mm. is um, I believe it's a blue crayon and a red wrapper and or something like that and so the crayon is trying so hard to be red and it just can't because it's it's blue and it was just it was so cute and at the end somebody finally is like you know will you will you color the ocean for me and they're like well I'm not very good at coloring things the right color but I'll try and they make this beautiful ocean you know mm-hmm. um, or it might have been the something something along those lines um, the other one I really really love is called introducing Teddy <laughs> and I of course like we we picked it up because it had my my younger child's name is Teddy. So that's why we originally picked it up off the shelf. We had no idea that it was a, uh, it was a book about gender. We, we had no idea when we opened it. And it's the story of this little boy and his, his teddy bear friend. And the teddy bear in the beginning identifies as a boy and, or, you know, is, is seen as a boy and partway through the story the teddy bear's like well you know i i really feel like i should be a girl and this is my name and the little boy is just like okay like why didn't you tell me before and the teddy bear was just like well because i was scared i was scared that you wouldn't like me like this and the little boy's like i like you because i like you 
Like, let's go to the park. Mm. And so they go to the park and they introduce, you know, uh, the little boy introduces Teddy, you know, with the new name to this little girl who's there playing. And the little girl's like, cool, let's play. And it's just like, this is yeah. exactly how little kids see gender is they they literally they don't it's care. It's so much more simple to them. Yeah. And it really it really shows me at least like how trained we have been um to see these differences so it's and it's not that they don't see the difference it's just that it's not it's not a big thing to them don't there's no bias there's no label of good or bad or black or white attached to it it's just Mm -hmm. it just is yeah yeah love it little kids are awesome (laughs) it is Um, interesting my son says that he wants to marry uh his friend named thomas and so he called him on the phone one he's told thomas this many times that he's going to marry him um and so one day he told thomas that he wanted to marry him and they were on a Zoom call together. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, well, Colton, I don't think I want to marry you because I want to marry a girl because I want to have babies. And my mommy's favorite thing about her life is that she has babies. And so I want to have babies. And so I have to marry a girl. And, <laughs> you know, then we're like, well, you don't have to marry a girl. To... <laughs> and so, like, we had already had that conversation with Colton. And. He was like, you know, you don't have to marry a girl to have babies. You can have babies. And he's like, but I actually don't want to have any babies because I want to do whatever I want all the time. I want to go to the <laughs> gardens every day. So maybe when you decide that you don't, and he's like trying to convince his friend that he shouldn't have kids. He's like, this is why you don't want to have kids. Okay. And his friend is like, no, I think I want to have kids. And I'm like, these are great conversations to have before you get married. I also think you're a few years away. Like, I I think you've got time to figure this out. Just a couple. (laughs) Cute. Uh, I love how, how much they know themselves though. And, like, mm-hmm. adults do not give kids enough credit for how much they know themselves. They know what they like. They know what they don't like. Mm-hmm. And, man, if you're around kids for any amount of time, they're not scared to tell you. You mm-hmm. just got to listen. Right. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on, Trisha, and talking yeah. with us. It was so much fun talking with you. And, you know, thank you so much for opening up and being vulnerable with your birth story and sharing all of that with us. Yeah, it was really nice. Thanks. You're really great at creating a safe space for that. And I feel like that's so nourishing. Well, it's nourishing to me to talk about, but um, it's also just really nice. I think so many times when we share our birth stories, it becomes like a one-upping kind of thing of like, oh, but then this, and then I was in labor for 10 hours, and I was in labor for 12. And it's just really nice to just share it in this safe space and I think every mom or every birthing parent should have that safe space oh well thank you so one last thing before we go where can everyone find you at yeah so I'm most active on Instagram um it's Osteria Parenting and Osteria is spelled O-S-T-A-R-I-A 
and parenting is just parenting and it's also my website is austeriaparenting.com so if you go there you'll find me sure enough thank you so much for coming on and talking with us trisha we loved having you on and thank you so much again for sharing your birth story with us thanks it's great to be here (laughs) Um, and to our listeners thanks so much guys we'll see you next time Bye. bye Thank you so much for joining us here on Birth Reimagined. If you'd like to join our Facebook community, you can find us there at Birth Reimagined Family. And if you'd like to join our email list, you can get the link to that on the show notes for this episode. Being a member of our email list gets you access to all our freebies and makes sure you're kept in the loop whenever a new episode drops or we have anything exciting to share. Thanks again and see you next time.